I'm Natasha. Thank you for the introductions. Um, as she mentioned, we're um, Aubrey Jap and Harriet Schultz. We're with the Butte Silver Bow Public Archives over in Butte, Montana. Um, and today we're here to talk to you about the CO and Smithers Photograph Collection. Um, it's the largest photograph collection that we've, um, we've cataloged to date. We purchased it, which was pretty unique for us. We generally don't purchase collections. Um, but we did so because we knew this was um, really important to our community. It documented important aspects of our, our city that are not documented in other photograph collections. Um, but what we're really here to talk to you about today is some of the treasures that we found within the collection. Um, but first, we're going to start with um, a little bit about Smithers himself. Um, C.O. and Smithers was one of Montana's most prestigious professional photographers. For more than 50 years, he used his camera to document Butte, Montana. Smithers' parents came to Montana in covered wagons in the 1880s and settled in the Kalispell area. And if I start bouncing off of here, it just tell me to scoot away from her. <laughs> um, he was born in 1893 and grew up in the Kalispell area where he began to learn the art of photography and use of the darkroom while working in his father's drugstore. In 1914, he became one of the first um, press photography students at the University of Montana's new school of journalism. Smithers' military service began when he served with the Montana Volunteers in the Mexican border incident of 1916. He went on to serve during World War I as a mess sergeant under General Pershing in France and later returned to active duty during World War II where he served as the Army Signal Corps Chief of Photography based out of New York City where he was in charge of the Army Photography <coughs> Section in New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. He remained in the Army Reserve until he was 65 years old. Um, Smithers came to Butte first though in 1921 right after his service in the First World War. He worked as chief photographer for the Anaconda Standard, a local newspaper, from 1921 to 23, um, and he put his, his craft to work on the streets and mine yards of Butte, um, documenting um, the landscape and actions of our city. From 1923 to 24, he partnered with another photographer called Frank Ward. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about him in the presentation. We've got some fun things with him. And, um, and he also worked with Tom Manning before opening his own photography studio in 1926, where he practiced commercial photography, studio photography, and um, he also loaned his services out to the, the newspapers. From the 1930s until his retirement from the photography business in 72, Smithers photographed every president of the United States from Herbert Hoover to Richard Nixon, uh, many when they visited Butte, as well as many presidential candidates who um, would not make it to the White House. Smithers married his wife Martha Mertz in 1926, and you can see him and his lovely bride crossing the threshold on that top left photo. And they had two children together, um, Charles Owen Jr. Oh, sorry, Charles Owen Jr., who would also become a photographer and follow in his father's footsteps, <coughs> and um, his daughter Martha Ann, and she was born in 1932. In addition to being a photojournalist, Smithers was a collector of images of Butte, Montana, and his collection has photographs um, comprising all over Montana um, from from earlier photographers as well, like Frank Ward and N.A. Forsythe and they include hundreds of photographs of Montana's early towns, events, and people. A little background on the collection. On um, 1994, there was a fire in Smithers Studio, which destroyed a large part of his collection with fire damage and then water damage as well from putting out the fire. Um, right after this happened, it was originally brought to the archives and archive staff attempted to 
preserve it as much as we could, just as out of goodwill to the family. We didn't have any um, stakes in this collection yet, so we kind of interleaved it, and then it was um, it was brought back to the family. Um, they stored it in a closet. Don't store photos in closets. So they stored it in their closet where they had a leak, and then it had more water damage again. So after that, in 2011, the family brought the collection to us again, and um, we had a group of volunteers go through, interleave it, put it in new envelopes. Again, we didn't own it at this time, so we just tried to, as cheaply as we could, do it, um, hoping that someday we could raise funds to purchase the collection. So we raised funds from our community. We had a couple of significant donations, and then members of the community just pitched in what they could, and we were able to buy the collection in 2013. So now we own this, this photo collection of about 25,000 negatives in horrible condition that we, we didn't have money to, um, to do anything with. So we applied um, the first time unsuccessfully, but the second time successfully for a National Historical Publication and Records Commission grant. And, and we got that, which allowed us to hire a couple of staff members and um, get some supplies to catalog and rehouse the collection. And so that was a two-year grant, and we pretty much dropped everything. And, um, be, you know, we just dived into Smithers for two years. And um, it, it, was really, it was really great. So um, at, the end of the at the end of the cataloging, we cataloged his ephemeral items, and in it is a Xerox copy. Oh, I didn't bring one up, but uh, it's a Xerox copy of this diary. And when we started reading it, um, there were photos we had cataloged that we, we didn't know what they were. They were unidentified, but as we started reading it, we thought, oh my gosh, that these photos, that's, that's what he's talking about. So it was pretty fun. So today we're going <coughs> to present to you, we're going to read his diary and present to you um, in many cases, it's the photos he's talking about. In other cases, we've tried to find representations because um, either the negative doesn't exist anymore or we just you know, weren't sure which one it was. So um, so we're going to get to the fun part where we're going to start reading that, and Harriet will pick up with that. When I first started in the business, powder, flashlight, and sheet and string was the only medium by which pictures in the dark could be obtained. This old magnesium-fashioned flashlight powder was very dangerous, and I knew it. Frank Ward, from whom I had learned much about the business, had had bitter experiences with the stuff and wouldn't touch it. He would caution me to be careful about using it, and cited me in many stories of deaths that had resulted from carelessness. He told me of one instance in Astoria, Washington, when he and another photographer were on an assignment. They were on a streetcar going to the job. The streetcars of that day were the old-fashioned ones built high from the ground. One had to descend or ascend steps at least three feet. The other photographer was ahead of him and had started to alight from the car. Frank had forgotten something and had raced back to get whatever it was from their seat in the rear of the car. The other photographer jumped down from the car and a bottle of flash powder bounced from his coat pocket as it flopped open. The resulting explosion killed the motorman and also himself and blew the front of the car from the rails. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not very happy story. I apologize. <laughs> but it's amazing that they use such dangerous. So in regard to this flash powder, he says, I use the stuff with much caution. I used a flash pan with a trigger that would explode a cap when I pulled the chain. The powder had to be poured out of a two-ounce bottle. I made a mistake of pouring some out of the bottle once when a few sparks were left on the flash pan. 
and the only reason I wasn't killed was that the bottle was practically empty. That was a good lesson. After that, I always run the pan with a little wire brush that I carried. The flash powder left a residue on the pan, and the intense heat created by the flash would sometimes last a long minute. Frank Zubik, another photographer in view, was also afraid of the flash powder, and generally turned over good jobs to me to take, as he didn't seem to mind me getting blown up. I remember. I remember one picture I made from a window of a fight crowd in front of the Butte Daily Post building. The crowd of maybe 1,500 extended across the street. And up Main Street, it's still going, isn't it? And up Main, to the Metals Bank corner, a good two blocks. I laid the powder along the pan, quite a bit of it, maybe an ounce, opened the lens shutter, pulled the trigger, and after the flash, which was instantly, closed the shutter. The picture I made was out of the ordinary. It was a very strong negative, however, and was printed on number one paper. We used to use an 8x10 view camera in those days with a tripod. I developed a system of holding a small camera a Graflex postcard size, on my knees at basketball games. I would sit up in the stands, set the camera for a 350 of a second, put half a teaspoon of powder on the pan, hold it over my head, pull the trigger, and by experience, press the camera trigger so that the shutter would go off in the middle of the flash. I would get about 50% of the shots, and they would be very good. <coughs> However, the crowd around me would sure howl though with approval as the flash powder would make awful smoke, and I couldn't take another for several minutes or about three of a game, and maybe one during a quarter. I remember another picture that I made one time of a dead body in a casket. I had received this call from the McQueen edition, I think. The house was not very large, and the room where the body laid was even smaller than usual. I finally used my wide-angle lens and set the camera up practically out of doors in the open doorway. It was cold that day and far below zero. I made the flash and filled the room with smoke and left the door open so that the room would air out. I had packed up my outfit and was just going out the gate when the door flew open and someone yelled for me to come back and take another picture. So I went back and found that the family wanted me to take the family grouped around the casket. I set the camera up again in the open door and asked the family to come in so that I could arrange them. I thought that they never would stop coming in from the other room. The dead sister had been one of 13 in the family, and they were all married and all had children. I finally managed to get them in and around the casket by standing a second row on chairs. However, they were really packed in like sardines. The kids were the biggest problem. There were quite a large number. I put the camera outside as far as I could, arranged the flash, and you should have heard the yelling and scrambling when the flash went off. The older people knew about this flash stuff, but the kids didn't. Luckily, I got a good picture on the first flash. I certainly wouldn't have been able to make another. They bought about six dozen of this picture. A couple of times I had accidents by shooting my flash under decorations. One time, the flash caught the paper tinsel afire and we had to pull everything down to get it out. That job cost me a new set of decorations. I also used to take many, many pictures at the old Winter Gardens dance hall. The good times we used to have there. 
Ernie Loomis was the owner and manager. He was a good spender for advertising, and it was nothing to have 2,500 people on a Saturday night. I would take flashlights of his special entertainment features and the very outstanding orchestra that he had gathered together. Weddings were a specialty. Many of them were the result of a couple meeting at his dance hall. They would have a special feature with many fine presents for the newly married couple donated by the Merchants of Butte. I would line them up, that is the wedding party, and soon as the Justice of the Peace would pronounce them man and wife, even before the groom would have a chance to kiss his bride, I would caution them to hold it and not move, and I would go up and kiss the bride before the groom could do his stuff. The crowd would sure get a kick out of the show that I would put on. Ernie approved of my actions and would generally slip me a $10 bill extra. I would lie awake in my room thinking of stunts that Ernie could put on so that I could take pictures. Once a year, we would put on a movie ball, one crowd for taking of the movies and a much bigger one for the showing of the finished movies. Frank Ward and I would borrow all of the arc lights in the city from the theaters and the Montana Power Company. We would line up the dancers through our light. The secret was to get every face in the film at least once. In those days, we had only 35 millimeter film and it took a couple of thousand feet to do the job. Ernie generally charged extra on those nights, and I remember he paid 4,000, he put 4,000 paid admissions in one night. This guy, Frank Ward, was an old, experienced cameraman. He had been shooting every kind of a camera since the turn of the century. Once we had a job to take a Boy Scout ski jumping exhibition at their camp over the range back of Columbia Gardens. The snow was deep, and we had quite a job with pack sacks on our backs wading the trail up the mountain and down the other side. We finally arrived and found that instead of the experienced and older Boy Scout jumpers, only a flock of younger boys were on hand. We certainly didn't want to lose that dollar a foot fee that Pathé or Fox News Reel was going to pay us. So Frank talked me into making the jump. Now I hadn't any recent experience in going over a ski jump, but I started down with Frank cranking like mad. I shouldn't have leaned forward quite so far, I afterward discovered. I also was lucky that I jumped a little sideways. I landed head first in the 15-foot snowbank on the side of the runway. The skis on my feet kept me from going through the snowbank to the ground below. I nearly smothered before the flock of youngsters dug me out and rescued me after Frank yelled to them. He kept cranking all the time and got a wonderful action picture full of snow action, believe me. If it would have been up to him to rescue me, I would have been smothered. So this picture I love because we found it and thought, what the heck are these girls doing in swimsuits in the snow? And so we were so excited when we found this passage, uh, which reads, Another time we lined up a bunch of ushers from the Rialto and American theaters. They had the best looking gals in town, and were, they were certainly a bunch of good sports. We had an early spring thaw and we took the girls to Gregson where they have many outside hot springs. The snow was deep and we had arranged for the girls to wear bathing suits and snowshoes or skis. They would take a dip in the hot steamy water, then put the skis or snowshoes on and do their stuff over the deep snow. We agreed that there should be a little more action and finally steered them to a little hill. So far, the girls have been fairly successful with their ski and snowshoeing efforts. They thought it was easy and it was on the level. We set the camera up below the short hill. Frank was ready and I steered them to the top. They got down 
the slope and found that they were only amateurs on the darn things, and there was a mix-up on the hill after they got started down. They ended up at the bottom in a tangle of legs, arms, screaming and yelling in the deep snow, and we sure got some out-of-the-ordinary movie pictures. We got a bonus for that job. President Harding was scheduled to visit Butte, and the paper wanted some shots, naturally, of him visiting the mines. I knew the route that the city officials were to take him and tried to figure out the best spot to take pictures. However, the darn detectives or guards accompanying him interfered with my plans, and not until he started to come out of the Mountain Con engine house on the hill did I manage to avoid the guards. I was all set up with my camera focused on the steps where he had to come down from the exit of the engine house. As he stepped out of the door on the small platform just above the steps, I yelled, Mr. President, may I take your picture for the local papers? He looked up as I said this, and the guards were evidently back of him and inside the door. They heard me yell and tried to get out. The crowd of the president and the Anaconda Company on the platform ahead of him held them long enough for me to get two or three shots. I was gone by the time the detectives got outside. I heard, hold it, Mr. President, for many years after from my youth friends. <laughs> When President Roosevelt arrived in Butte, I got some good shots at the depot and along the line of the parade. <coughs> he was a willing subject and I had a long enough lens so that I could stand back 20 feet and still get good shots. Senator Walsh of Butte was alongside him and he knew me and yelled a couple of times to take a picture and the president would smile for me. The local postmaster Parker's son presented him with a basket of flowers at one point and Roosevelt set the boy on the open car alongside him and I got a really good picture. Thirty years in the same location and I find that I must move my studio. This spot is like home. Thirty years is a long time and this place is so much a part of my daily life that it is going to be difficult to get used to a new location. But all things must end. They are going to pull the building down that has been my business home for thirty years and build a new office location. My wife and some close friends who dare to tell me that it is a good thing and that it is a, the only way that I'll find some things that have been lost for many years. Also, that the place will finally get cleaned up. She, my wife, is in despair over getting it clean. I think the studio or shop is okay. It suits me to a T. The dust might be a little thick in some spots, but I don't even see the dust. All that I see are memories. Every piece of equipment brings up some incident pertaining to photography. My son, who is in with me and who is going very well and who is going very well and is a good photographer, doesn't pay much attention to the junk, as my wife calls most of the contents of my shop. I think that he could clean up a little more often, but maybe the remarks of quite a few customers and strangers have made an impression on him as upon me. These strangers come in and stare around at the picture on walls and generally remark to the effect that the place should stay just as it is. They call it picturesque and a place of the old school. Just the other day, a friend of mine came in and said that my shop was the only place he knew of that looked like a studio. He continued to say that a studio should show pictures and not modern decorations and outlandish colors and lines. Certainly my place is not in any sense of the imagination modern, just four walls full of pictures and things that remind one of photography. Not long ago, a friend of mine stopped me on the street and asked me how in the world I managed to get into Encyclopedia Britannica, and I answered that I didn't know that I was in there. 
He asked me to look under Butte, and there it was. The most interesting things that travelers should look up and see in Butte were the Clark home, where one of the Copper Kings held sway in the years beginning the 20th century. Second, a school of mines or museum, one of the best in the world. And thirdly, C. Owen Smithers Studio, where he has one of the best collections of old-time photographs and information. I have had tourists come in and start to look around and ask questions as if the place were a museum. If I have time and the tourists are not too forward and brazen, I will open up scrapbooks or drag out old-time piles of Pioneer Day pictures and keep them ogle-eyed for as long as they want to stay and listen. I have stories and histories of most of my old pictures, and as the wife says, they grow with each telling. In the back room where I have a copy camera, my desk is piled high with letters and papers. Alongside is a big fireproof safe and shelves full of books and files of photographic magazines. On the other wall are files of negatives, old picture frames hung on sticks nailed to the walls. High up on one wall, a shelf of old early cameras, something that very few except myself appreciate or understand. On one wall, some choice pictures, a 16 by 20 of Thomas Edison that I obtained out of some old frame, a slide copy for a motion picture theater of Fatty Roscoe Arbuckle, a relic of the 20s, a watercolor picture of a scene entitled, We Must See Butte, painted by my old friend Frank Ward, a pen and ink original of Heinze, one of the old copper kings of early Butte, and a large campaign placard telling of Charlie Hughes and Charles Fairbanks as candidates for president and vice president in 1916. There are bits of looking glass stuck at odd angles around the room through which I can see up front from practically anywhere I sit and work. Sometimes I start looking for some old negative and get started looking through old files. Do these old files bring memories? For instance, the old glass negatives mark the human fly. This bird came into my shop one day and wanted me to take a series of him climbing a skyscraper in our city. I climbed into the elevator of the building and got on the roof where I hooked my foot through a rain drain. The huge crowd below, even stories, couldn't see that my foot held me in place, although it certainly appeared to the faces below that I should and would fall if I leaned out much further. I had an old-fashioned graphlex and shot the human fly as he climbed from window to window and ledge to ledge. Finally, he reached out and grabbed the wide overhanging ledge at the top and made it. This last effort was the best in my opinion, and I thought he had done a wonderful job. He had some pals on the ground below passing the hat, but the crowd didn't seem to respond very well. He kept glancing down to see how they were doing. They evidently gave him some previously arranged signal. After, he had gained the roof with me and he. And then that's the end of his diary. We're missing page nine. <laughs> and I think if you remember the picture of his studio, that might be maybe why it's not found. His wife was probably right um, that he maybe needed to clean up a little. But we do have a couple more photos. He had lots of photos that um, I think might have been in his studio and, and were burned, but they had notes on the back. And so um, we're going to go through a couple of those that were some of our favorites. David Rubinoff was a popular violinist who was heard during the 30s and 40s on various radio programs playing his Stradivarius violin. On the back of this photograph was typed. During the intermission, the photographer was asked by Rubinoff to pick up the violin and play a chord or two. Smithers had never even touched an instrument of this kind, but at Rubinoff's insistence, picked up the $100,000 instrument and struck a note. Rubinoff put his hands to his ears in protest at the discord that was played. Smithers had the musician's assistant take the photograph. He values it very highly as a memento of Rubinoff's visit to Butte. 
And then this photo is kind of a mystery when it was first cataloged. We thought, who is this woman on the back of this train? And um, she's Queen Maria of Romania. And she was on a train tour across the United States. And she was uh, scheduled to stop in Deer Lodge, Montana, to look at these sheep they had. They must have, at the Beck Ranch, there must be great sheep. Romanian sheep. Romanian shepherd sheep, yes. And um, so she's scheduled to stop, but they're running a little late. But everyone had gathered to welcome the Queen of Romania. So the train didn't stop. So Smithers uh, chased down the train and, and had her stop. The, the train slowed down enough that he could take this photograph. So, um, and then there's a big newspaper article talking about, you know, Smithers chased down the train and it, um, it goes on and on. So, um, so that, is, that is our slideshow. So um, thank you for letting us present these to you. Overall, we're so pleased we got this collection and that, you know, we found these treasures like this that were kind of fun, fun little reminiscences to, to share with you all. So thank you.